Morning, everybody. My name is Eric. I am one of the pastors here, and we're going to be continuing our study through the book of Ephesians. This is our third message in our series. We are still in chapter one. You can open up there if you have a Bible. Follow along with me. The scripture is also in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along with that. I'm going to read our scripture and then get into the word. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you might know what is the hope to which he has called you and the riches in his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward those of us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule, authority, and power, and dominion for every name that is named, and not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him to the head um, all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. God, I pray that your word would come across with clarity, with accuracy, with power. I pray for the hearts of anybody here that does not know you this morning and has not bent their knee and asked you um, to have a relationship with you, that today they would begin that relationship. I pray for the hearts of those who have known you. Um, may they be encouraged and spurred on in their faith this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, I want to talk to you this morning about a topic that has been one of my favorite topics over the course of my Christianity, and that's the topic of revival. And um, when we truly ache for revival, what we're saying is we want the church to be seen for who it truly is and who we truly are in Christ. And perhaps it's because I've not been preaching as often as I used to, but this text really exposed some stuff in my heart before I was able to preach it. So I spent all week preaching this text to my own heart. In studying Ephesians, I was reminded of another passage where the Ephesian church is dealt with, Revelation chapter 2, where the apostle John calls out the Ephesian church, reminding them that you have left that love that you had at first. And if I am just frankly honest with you, there have been aspects of my Christian walk where I have allowed discouragement, disappointment with just life, um, disillusionment, to cause me to walk away from the love that I had at first. A little testimony from my walk with Christ. When I came to know Jesus, I realized that I wanted all of my friends to come to know Jesus. And I wanted to see each of them be able to have this hope for Jesus. And it put within me this hunger for revival that was... Man, I, I look back at that hunger and I want it, but I don't want to just recapture something from the past. I want the Lord to be doing a new work and filling new wineskins. But over the course of the history of my early walk with Jesus and time in ministry, I've preached on revival. I've preached at revival meetings. I've held all-night 
times of prayer for uh, revival. We used to host a monthly time of prayer for revival on the Jersey Shore. I began to become a student of the Great Awakenings and read anything that I could get my hands on on the first and second Great Awakenings, the Great Welsh Revival of 1903 and 04, C.T. Studd and the Cambridge Seven, who were the first ones to begin to start to take missions into Africa in 1885, the Sudanese Revival of 1938, the Pyongyang Revival in Korea in 1907. And you just read these things and see when the church gets a glimpse for what it means to be the church, what happens in this world. And you couldn't help but become a student of revival when you see these things because you're saying, I want to see this. I want to see some book of Acts kind of stuff in my generation, not just hearing about it in history books or hoping that it's going to happen in the future. I want to be a part of this and I want it to define the reality that we are walking in and living in. The thing that hit my heart this week in studying and, and revealed elements of leaving the love that I had at first for the first time since I've been a Christian I have allowed pessimism regarding the state of this world, as I see it, to snuff out the belief that I will see revival in my lifetime. Um, Surely I still believe that God can, um, but I once believed and would said that I would die on the fact that God will, and those are two different things, and I believed it with 100% certainty. And the complexities and the frustrations of everyday life take over, and they make it easy, as Bob Dylan said, to have your nose on the ground and your eyes in your pocket and just staring at the stuff down there and forgetting that we were made for more than this. And you can, you can get so mired with the stuff that's two inches in front of your face that we forget that we were created for something so much bigger and what happens is revival starts to then sound nice, but in a storybookish kind of way, rather than the reality that I believed that we were going to be seeing in this world. But I'm glad that God allowed me to go through this season where my passion for revival was squelched, because even though I was a student of revival, I was missing it. I associated with revival with having all of the feels. I wanted all the Jesus feels to be able to just come and transcend upon this place. And I wanted to have that. When I read about the things that would happen during Jonathan Edwards' first great awakening meetings, I wanted to have that. I wanted to feel what they felt. I I would get opportunities to speak at churches around the country and sometimes even around the world. And more often than not, I would speak about revival. And it was typically received quite well by a people who also wanted to see Revival. In fact, it was received well enough where many times I wondered, um, Lord, are you calling me to be a traveling revival preacher? And wow, did that show just how much I was missing it because I didn't understand that revival always starts with the church and specifically revival happens during those rare moments throughout redemptive history when we simply show the world who the church truly is in Christ. So this week, as I reflected on my text, um, of course, the movie Black Panther came to mind because I'm sure that's what you're all thinking right now. Uh, Wakanda forever. (laughs) Oh, I'm saying, let's ditch that. Uh, If you're familiar with the movie, 
there's this one scene when T'Challa is down on the ground and the raiders from the north, they come up and they're challenging his kingship and he is losing the battle and you see the king being defeated and you hear his mother yell as he's fading out of consciousness, show him who you are, T'Challa. And that scene gives me chills. It's a, it's a beautiful scene because as he remembers who he is, he begins to find his bearings once again. And as he remembers who he is, he's no longer a defeated child. He is a triumphant king. And later, as he remembers who he is, when his homeland is being attacked, he's able to take that message of show him who you are. And he says to his people before he leads them out in battle, he says, it's time we show them who we are. It's time for the world to see who we are. They needed to be reminded that they were not some sorry, broken down people, but they were a power collective force to be reckoned with. And that's sort of the breakdown of Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1, 1 through 14, Paul is saying, hey, church, remember who you are. And then he gets to this missional thrust in verses 15 through 23, where he's saying, now show them who you are. And when we begin to understand this, we begin to understand that we live this life not as a defeated people who all, we are a people who already live out the reality that Paul expresses in verse 22 in our text, that God has already put all things in subjection under the feet of Christ. So therefore, as the body of Christ, when we stay attached to Christ, what is true of the king is true of his people. So brothers and sisters, um, this morning I'm going to give you that same charge. Let's show the world who we are so they can see a clear picture of who our Jesus is. Our text begins with Paul giving thanks for who the church presently are in Christ. Look at verses 15 and 16. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. One of the things that God has been challenging me in for the longest time in my faith is I have taken a very individualistic reading of the Bible. Now, hear me carefully because I don't want anybody leaving here thinking, hey, the pastor said I should not read my Bible for personal growth and personal relationship with Jesus. Um, don't put that evil on me, Ricky Bobby, because that's not what I'm saying. Um, what I am saying is that our understanding of some biblical passages should have at least that but it needs to go beyond that. We need to remember that God is writing to a people. There is this very um, corporate or, or uh, maybe better familial way that the Bible is written. And that flies in the face of Western culture, particularly in American culture's fascination with individualism to the point of each person having their own individualistic autonomy and biblical cultures wouldn't have written or read anything like that. They understood their identity as being an identity as a part of a people, and they would have understood that anything that they read would have been addressed to a people and would have interpreted it so. We see so many examples of this when we just observe the way that Jesus talked with people as he walked through the earth during the Gospels. And um, it was probably the thing that angered people the most about Jesus. Think about when Jesus told the paralytic in Mark chapter 2, when they cut the hole through the ceiling and they let him down, and, and he's laid down in front of Jesus, and he says, child, 
your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees start to grumble. Why did they begin to grumble? Because they understood the corporate nature of Jesus' words. They say, wait, if he can tell that man that his sins are forgiven, what's to stop him from telling everybody that their sins are forgiven? They understood the mission of Jesus right there, um, where I don't think that we would have thought through any of that, right? We, We would have thought, probably likely, oh, that's cool, that guy got his sins forgiven. Um, I hope he can walk. That would be cool too. Um, but I don't think that we would have taken a corporate understanding of that. Or, or why did the religious Jews freak out so much when Jesus started hanging around the Gentiles? Because in their minds, if this guy, who the people are looking at as if he's some kind of guru, and he's hanging out with filthy Gentiles, then other people are going to start to do it, and we might even be asked to do it. So they understood that the demands were very familial in nature, but I don't think that we consciously can think that way without actually training our minds to do so, because we are so inclined in our culture, even the way our devotional literature is written, for it to just be, it's just me and Jesus. It's my devotions. It's my quiet time. It's my response. And I'm not picking on anyone in any way because this is the culture that we grew up in. But you can't understand this book of Ephesians and especially this part if it's read in that way. And I could prove it to you before I move on that we are predisposed to think in this individualistic manner in a way that would take discipline to be able to think any other way. You guys remember the um, worship song that was very popular during the 90s, Open the Eyes of My Heart, I Want to See You? That song was taken directly from this passage. Let's look at where it was taken from in verse 18. It says, having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints. So this worship song is all about my heart, my eyes, I want to see Jesus. And again, those are not bad things to be celebrating, but when you look at the passage, it's saying open the eyes of their hearts, that they may know, and that they can see you. And one of Paul's most direct passages where he corporately prays for the church, that they would have eyes to truly be the church, we've turned it into a popular song about ourselves. So what message is Paul seeking to deliver to the church? He's saying, I'm really encouraged by who you are in Christ. That's how he starts off his prayer in 15. And he's telling them, I pray these things for your church that I'm about to share with you. And he's giving thanks for who they are as a church. And he wants them to know that this about who they are as a church, and he's really encouraging them to continue to strive towards Christ's likeness. So what does Paul give thanks for in our text? Let's look at the text. This is a church that is known for their faith in Jesus, he says. For this reason, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. He's encouraging them about their love toward all of the saints. And interestingly enough, Paul is giving thanks for the fact that they are sharing together in the life of Christ by loving God and loving neighbor. If you look at verses 15 and 16, it's right there in the text. Again, we didn't lift that out of thin air. And then he says he does not cease to give thanks to them. 
And he does not cease to make mention of them in his prayers. Boy, is that convicting. How cool is it to be able to say under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that I always pray for you and I always give thanks for you. He's telling them, I am encouraged, Ephesians, by who you presently are. And this is so encouraging to think about. I don't know if you can identify that I have a terrible habit. I was wondering this week, is this my worst habit? Um, It's at least one of my worst of being more excited about what I hope to see in the future than being able to be excited for what presently is in reality. I'm always wondering what's on the other side of the hill that needs to be charged, and I'm way too willing to suspend my happiness until I've charged that hill to find out what's on the other side. I'm someone where if something is good, instead of being able to just enjoy something for being good, I always think, well, wouldn't this good be better if we just add anything? And that's why I've literally been addicted to everything during the course of my lifetime and why I need Jesus so badly because that is my attitude. If a little is good, a lot must be better. And if a lot is good, well, then let's find a way to pump up the volume on this. That's the way that my crazy thinking is predisposed to. Um, it's not something I really like about myself, but I just want to warn you, if you're wired in that way, it's not good. And if you keep it up, it distorts the way that you see reality. You begin to develop disconnects, and I see it all the time. I'm not happy in my marriage. I'm happy with the future version of who I want my spouse to be. So how about you go and set about changing yourself so that you could be transformed into my image? Um, I'd be a whole lot happier If you were just more like me, then move to California where you're allowed to marry yourself, if that's really what you're looking. I mean, I don't know if they do that. I'm just assuming. Um, People never put it that way. They they never say, like, um, if my, the problem with our relationship is that my spouse just needs to be more like this guy. I've yet to ever have that, yet I've heard that hundreds of times from people. Um, I can't be happy with my body until I look like whatever unrealistic body image you want to put into your head. I can't be happy with my church until they have the right children's program, the right youth ministry, play less hymns if they play more hymns, if they play the same amount of hymns but only start playing the hymns that I like, have a woman's Bible study, have a post-young adult Bible study but still millennials because they don't know where they fit in so we need to create a place for them. And you know what? After all of those things have been created, then we will still find something to not be happy about. If that's the way that your heart is predisposed, which is why I typically have very little patience for conversations like that. When you're only able to delight in a future non-reality that you hope to see, then it neglects the beauty of your present reality and it robs you of joy. Um, Perhaps this was best put by Master Ugwe from Kung Fu Panda. (laughs) Yesterday is history. Tomorrow is a mystery, but today is a gift, and that's why it's called the present. You got to get some ugwe in there, you know what I'm saying? But that's where our text is taken to. He's saying, I presently give 
thanks for who you are. So I want to ask you, in the context of Paul giving thanks for the Ephesians and who they are, I want to ask you to consider a couple of things. Are you more inclined to give evidences of God's grace or to give a complaint? Honest heart question. Like, I'm going to ask you a couple of these. I'm going to pepper you with these throughout the sermon. Ask your hearts these questions. Are you more inclined to give evidences of God's grace, or are you more inclined to give a complaint? Just think about the last phone calls that you've done to do either one. Have you logged a phone call to complain about something, or have you logged a phone call to call somebody up and say, wow, I see these evidences of grace just manifested in and through your life. Um, Is it difficult for you to remember the last time you pointed out evidences of God's grace in your church or that you see in others? Are you somebody who regularly gives thanks for your church and gives thanks for the believers around you? Or are you more inclined to only have conversations about how everybody around you has failed you and how you would be so much better if you didn't have to step on the heads of idiots everywhere where you walk? I'd like to put a couple things out there for your clear consideration. People who rarely give evidences of God's grace in others are also people who rarely ever show gratitude to others. If it's difficult to remember the last time you pointed out an evidence of grace in others, but it's super easy, if you just look around the room, do, do a test. If you look around the room and you see all of these people And all you recall is how they did not meet your expectations, but you're having a hard time being able to come up with present evidences of grace in them, then you probably do not make it a regular point to give thanks or point out evidences of grace within others, which is why the church is probably one of the most critical organizations on the face of this planet, and people are burned out by it, and they want people to knock it off. People are tired of being criticized constantly. People who are unable to point out evidences of God's grace and others are generally just not very gracious people to themselves or to others. At least they're consistent. Um, But if you only mention to people where they fall short and never give evidences of grace, it's probably time for you to practice the words of James and to become slow to speak, um, quick to listen, and ask the Lord to come and change your heart. We never want to become a people who desire to, re- to receive grace but refuse to give it out or point it out when we see it in others because that person is like a leaky faucet and might I add, they're also zero fun to be around. So I want you guys to just think for a moment before we move on to the next part of our text of how broken the Ephesian church was. This is the same church that John said they lost their first love in Revelation 2. This is the church that Paul had to send his close confidant, Timothy, to and then write two different letters to be able to tell the people in the church to knock it off because the Ephesians were just constantly wiling out. This is the same church that began their church plant with a riot to the sex god Artemis in the book of Acts. So they did not start with very uh, auspicious beginnings. Yet Paul takes the eyes of Christ and he's able to see past all of that gunk and tell them that he gives thanks because he sees them as beautiful. Redeemer, I, I would be remiss if I didn't stop and just share in Paul's giving of thanks because you guys are beautiful. And I have just stopped and just said, Lord, recalibrate my thinking. Just thank you that I get to be amongst a beautiful 
people like this. You people are beautiful. And he gives thanks for them. And then Paul prays that we would see who we truly are in Christ. Look at verses 17 through 19. He says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power to those of us who believe according to the working of his great might. So let's break down the four things that Paul prays for. He prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ would give them a spirit of wisdom and a revelation and the knowledge of him, that the knowledge of him would become their worldview, that they would begin to be able to see everything through, that Christ would not just be a knickknack on the shelf, but he would be the very prism through which we view reality to. He prays that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened to understand the reality of the hope to which he's called us to. So he's saying, I'm praying that they would get it when they walk around, that they're hopeless, that you would realize, if you're sitting here today, that you would realize, if you feel hopeless, that you are not hopeless. He's saying, God, show them. Show them the reality of their hope because there's nothing greater than this hope. There is no other hope than that hope. Help them to see it. And brother and sister, if you feel defeated, I pray the same prayer that Paul prayed for the Ephesian church, that the eyes of your hearts would be enlightened, that you would know that there is this hope that is in Jesus. And hope does not disappoint, according to the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans. Then he goes on to pray that we would understand the depths of his riches and the inheritance of what he has given the church. I'll tell you what, man. When I hear people talk about the church, more often than not, it's said like this, the church. Like it's like some kind of like negative. It's not being talked about like a place that's filled with glorious inheritances of riches when I hear most people's vernacular. But Paul's saying, would you please see all that Christ went through to give you all that you have and would you live out of the reality of those glorious riches that are yours in Christ. And lastly, he prays that we would understand the immeasurable power given to those who believe, a.k.a. the church, and the working of his might in us and through us. Immeasurable power. Every single superhero movie Ever. The plot of it is somebody wants immeasurable power, whether it's Thanos, whether it was those three weirdos from Superman 2, whoever it is, man, they all want, and this verse is saying here, there's immeasurable power that was given to the church when the church is the church. And he's praying, God, show them who they are. There's so much power that comes from understanding just who we are. We are the church. Our power doesn't come from having our guy in office. We don't have a guy. Our guy is Jesus, and he's not running for president anytime soon. We're the church. Our power doesn't come from having the right political leanings. It doesn't come from having some ivory tower, high moral high ground to be able to wag our finger at the fallen morality of sinners in this world. No, our power comes from Jesus Christ dying on the cross for our sins. And when he rose from the grave, he offered us a relationship with himself and perfect union with himself for anyone who would believe on this gospel message. And you can believe in that right now and you can know that 
power. We do ourselves such a great disservice when we place our hope of power in anything other than the gospel because the gospel is the only thing that has been ever called the power of salvation for all of those who believe and is the gospel who grounds your identity in true who you truly are. So I want you to just recollect for a minute who Ephesians 1 has said that you are. I think I have a slide that even goes along with this. You have been chosen, so you can't become unchoosable. You are holy and blameless, even if you don't feel holy and blameless. You've been adopted, even if you don't feel like a son or a daughter of the king. You are forgiven, even if you feel as if your egregious sin was unforgivable. You are redeemed, even if you do not feel redeemable. You are loved, even if you're sitting here today feeling unlovable. You are a part of a plan, even if you feel as if your life is meandering and has no meaning. And you are approved, even if you do not feel approvable. That is who you are proclaimed from verses 3 through 14 of Ephesians. Now add to this that we are also a people with a spirit of revelation and wisdom and knowledge of him. Add that to the list. We're also a people who are able to tap into the hope that Christ called us to. Add that to the list. We're also a people with a rich inheritance. Add that to the list. We're also a people with immeasurable power through Christ at our disposal. Add that to the list. Can you understand why Paul is crying out, understand who you are. The world wants so badly to reinforce the opposite of this message. Look, this is a fact, Jack. The world is not a forgiving place, so they don't want you to walk around feeling forgiven. Do you know how many times people have looked at me with disgust in their eyes when I tell them that David Berkowitz is somebody who I am pleased to call a friend and I get to go and spend time with him from time to time? You know what response I've gotten from Christians? Why should he be forgiven for his atrocities? Why should you be forgiven? Why should anybody be forgiven? My forgiveness costs the same thing as his forgiveness costs and costs the same thing that your forgiveness costs, the death of Jesus. He doesn't have this step of sins, and you know what, it only took a little bit of my blood to save him, but you know, Berkowitz, I don't know if I have enough blood to be able to save him. We were all cleansed by that same cleansing fountain of the blood of Jesus. Spend, people spend their whole lives seeking approval. You see it. They don't even try to mask it. They look for approval in their younger years and don't find it. So then they just max out trying to have debt so they can keep up with the Joneses in their middle years and they don't find it. And then as they're older, they are still people who don't know what it means to have been approved. So they're still looking for it. So if people don't understand that they can be approved, they do not understand that we are approved simply because Jesus said, it is finished. The world feels as if it's in a constant need to assign blame. So they're not going to reinforce the message that you are blameless. Just look at literally anything, literally the moment that anything goes wrong. It's like Tom Waits said years ago, everyone's looking for someone to blame. How dare you walk around blameless? I'm looking to blame somebody. And boy, don't we see that whenever the church stumbles? People are so quick to, ah, see, I knew you weren't as blameless as you were saying you were. I see, I knew that you were, what, a bunch of sinners? 
Yeah, we never claimed that we were anything different. And if we did, then we've distorted the gospel. It's like one of my favorite poets once said, we ain't meant to survive because it's a setup. If you know who the poet is, talk to me after uh, the service. I'll give you a dollar. The next chapter, Paul talks about this world and its chasing of death is following after the prince of the power of the air. Um, In case you don't know what that means, we're going to explain it in the next sermon, but it's not a good thing. Um, It's not a gracious world that he's describing. Throughout the book, Paul is going to be dealing with this idea of principalities and powers that are presently at work in this age. So like the poem said, we ain't meant to survive. It is a setup. But guess what? Jesus Christ changed that setup. He changed the narrative when he came and lived a sinless life and he came and died an atoning death and he rose from the grave giving the power over death, hell, sin, and Satan to his church. And man, when we put our hope in that message, we are united with him in victory, according to Paul's words in Romans chapter 6. And this is why I have zero patience for people whose hobby it is to sit around and bash the church. And if you're one of those people, I want to remind you that you're talking about Jesus' wife, so you might want to cool it. I get it. The church is imperfect, it's broken, it's messy. It's pretty stinking unspectacular at times. There is a risk of getting hurt if you put yourself out there. The church is a broken place, and you want to know why? Because it's filled with you and me. It's filled with broken people, and I, for one, am super grateful about that. Are you? Because if it wasn't a place made up of broken people, we would not be here this morning. But the church is also the only place where we can say, We are the forgiven people of God. We are the adopted sons and daughters of the Almighty. We are the collective redeemed people of God. And even though we might not look beautiful to ourselves in Christ's eyes, when he looks at you, he sees his wife. And you know what? He thinks his bride is beautiful. So far in our text, we've seen the power of giving thanks for who we are in Christ the incredible power of understanding of who we are in Christ. And when we truly live out of who we are, we show the world who Jesus is, which is why Paul prays at the end of this passage, show them who we are. Look at verses 20 through 23. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to the head of the church over all things, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So that power that worked to raise Christ from the dead is at work in his church. Do you understand that? Jesus Christ is alive. And the power that rose him from the grave is the same power that is at work within his church. It says it right there in the text. I'm not trying to give you a motivational speech. I'm telling you what the Bible says. You can read it right there. We may be bandaged and broken, but we sure as heck ain't powerless, is what this is saying. The enemy might want us to believe that we're powerless, 
But that's why this text screams, show them who we are. Let them see who we are. You embrace who we are. We are the redeemed people of God. We are just a bunch of nobodies walking the earth trying to tell everybody about a somebody, as it's been said. And the power that rose Jesus from the dead is at work in us while we do it. How awesome is that? But wait, it actually gets better. He says in the next verse that all things have been put in subjection to Christ. Do you know what the Greek word all things means in this text? All things. Everything has been put in subjection to Christ. Christ is king. Christ was king. Christ is king. And he's coming back and Christ will be king. But until then, he has given that power to his church. And he says, all things have been put under his feet. Again, do you know what all things means? It means all things. All things have been put under the feet of Christ. And then he assembles this supernatural force on earth in our second to last verse, in verse 22. He says, he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things, which is the church. So the church assembles to be the body and take on this amazing mission And when we assemble, it's like Voltron with Christ as our glorious head. And he gives power to the church to go and proclaim the commission that he sent us out with. To go and be little Jesuses to a world who needs to see that there is hope to be found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. God's plan for making the beauty of his son known to this world is by the world seeing the beauty of the church. That's what the text is saying. So we need to spend a lot more time reflecting on who we are in Christ and who we wish to be. When the church comes together armed with a full realization of who we are, we show the world who Christ is. That's the cherry on top of this text, folks. And when the church understands where we are, who we are, We can show the world that we are who we are all because of Jesus. It's not some superiority thing. I didn't do anything. Jesus came and grabbed me by the back of the neck when I was trying to run as fast as I could in the other direction. And that's why I love the doctrine of irresistible grace because if it was resistible, I would have continued to resist the very grace by which he saved me and made me his own. When we start... When we're understanding and standing in the reality of who we are and we're showing the world who we are, we don't need licks and tricks and gimmicks to make the world pay attention because people are hardwired to appreciate beauty. Unfortunately, sin is hardwired to distort beauty and it takes that which God has called beautiful and tries to make something repugnant of it. But we are hardwired to recognize and appreciate beauty when we see it. So when we see people start to huddle around that beauty as it's manifested, do you know what that's called? It's called revival, like we talked at the beginning. Let's so let's show them who we are that all might know him. Let's pray. God thank you for who we are in you because of who you are and what you've done. Lord, as we come to proclaim that now through this meal that celebrates your death 
for us, Lord, where you have proclaimed over all principalities and powers, it is finished, Lord. We proclaim that as we partake of this meal. We may, may we do so with joyful hearts, Lord, enamored at who you are and what you've done for us. Lord, thank you for calling a ragtag bunch of knuckleheads to be your bride. In Jesus' name, amen.